So our first reading is from Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, and that's on page 775 of the Pew Bibles. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And now we're going to continue reading in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through to chapter 9, verse 13. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. When Jesus was having dinner with Matthew at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well read, Loz. Thank you. 
think these accounts of Jesus are a real gift to us because they, they press on our assumptions around the world. They, they, they lightly challenge our, our worldview and how we perceive everything as we go about life. I'll speak in general terms, but I fear that Western Christians are more influenced by the secular world in terms of how they view things than perhaps we're willing to acknowledge. We tend to buy into that picture of like materialism or naturalism or scientism, whatever you want to call it, that, that what we know through science and, and what we can prove and test is true and anything else that can't be in that space is suspect and shouldn't be believed. Yes, we're Christians, we believe in Jesus, but he died, rose again, went to heaven back in the first century, and now we kind of just live with the natural world right here. I don't know if we'd have articulated quite like that, but I, I do think that often is the way that we walk through life and live this world. Sometimes I think we, we are so fixated on security, especially over here in the North Shore, because it's something that we can kind of like put our hands on. We, we do really know and believe what we can see and experience in this natural world right here, right now, and the spiritual is kind of unknown and vague and hazy. And so if I can put my hands on a career and a property and a bank account and say, I, I have security and no one can take that from me, that's really comforting to us. But that reveals to us that perhaps we're living from a place of, of fear rather than from a place of faith, as Jesus calls us to. I think these passages are so helpful because you start to hear about divine words calming storms and demon-possessed people, and very quickly you start to put on your like Bible glasses and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a thing that happened back then with Jesus, but we don't see that here anymore today, you know? But perhaps that's not right. Perhaps the Gospel of Matthew actually has been given to us not as just like a fun history lesson that you give up your Sundays to go and learn from, but a declaration that Jesus brought the kingdom of God to this world. And that, yeah, he's, he's risen and gone to heaven, but that kingdom is being built here right now. And this world that we're viewing of Jesus stepping and walking through the ancient Near East, it's not just a thing that happened. It's a picture of the world that we live in today. And it's important that we get this right, because if we don't, if we just buy in and drink the Kool-Aid of the secular Sydney that we live in, we end up being a people who hamstring ourselves in our discipleship. It's like we're lining up at the marathon, ready to run 42Ks with a broken ankle, but we refuse to acknowledge that the ankle's broken. And so we just kind of like limp our way along for 42 kilometers until we just pass out at the end. It's dumb. You need to go home, bind up your ankle, get it sorted, and then come back and run the marathon. But trying to follow Jesus without acknowledging that there is a deeply spiritual reality to the world that we live in, that yes, there are even demons and powers and authorities and principalities that we need to wrestle with, that yes, we live in a natural world with order, scientific method, I'm all for it, it's good, we can learn things from it, but we still believe in a Jesus who calms storms and brings miracles and defies the natural. And if that's not a part of our belief and a part of our experience, we're not going to shine the light of Jesus. We're going to have a watered-down faith. The ancient churches, over centuries, used a threefold way to describe the Christian experience. We're wrestling with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, I think we kind of get, and I think we're really feeling it right now in Sydney, that, that people and leaders and powers, institutions, without the gospel, are inherently opposed to Jesus. You know, as we sit here thinking, okay, maybe people don't really like Christians anymore in, in Australia and wrestle with, like, does that mean I need to stand up? We kind of get that. What we don't get very well is the flesh and the devil. The flesh. 
there is a sense that every person has sin in their life. Yep, cool. Yes, amen. Even when you meet Jesus, you still have to wrestle with desires and sins that perhaps aren't godly, and it's difficult and hard. Yes and amen. But I think for most of us, because we deny or just kind of forget about the spiritual realities, we're trying to wrestle with deep-seated sin and, and pasts filled with pain and trauma without any divine help. And we're just trying to wrestle with it on our own because we've denied the reality of a God who intervenes and still acts in this world. And don't get me started on the devil. I don't think we've got any way to to make sense of some of the demonic and spiritual stuff that happens in our world because it just doesn't fit into our worldview. And yet, it's littered on the pages of the New Testament. We have to come to grips with this. We have to come to grips with the fact that a biblical worldview is not just natural scientific method, but has a complete spiritual realm. That, that we, Ephesians chapter 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the principalities, the spiritual forces of this world. We have to wrestle. Because that is our primary battle as Christians. And yet it's, it's the least talked about thing in my experience within our churches. That's why I love these passages, because Jesus, if we are willing to not just try and find like a nice little moral truth, he wants to open our eyes and lift our eyes to see something so much greater and so much more helpful for our walk. So we're going to do that. Does that make sense? We're, going to, we're just going to sit in these passages and let God shape our worldview. So keep your Bibles open. You're going to want them open. We're in chapter 8 from verse 23. Jesus calms the storm. I love this story. You know, Jesus... I'll jump to 26 quickly. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Man, I think these disciples have got a pretty good rational reason to be afraid. There's an enormous storm that's threatening to kill them, and he's just having a nap in the corner of the boat. You can hear him snoring. He's got a nice pillow in a different account. Like, it's just, it seems absurd for Jesus to say, why are you so afraid? The word for boat here suggests a boat that's about two meters by eight meters. So like picture one Nick Wood width, four Nick Wood long. That's kind of like the picture of a boat, which is not small, right? That's kind of, like it's not a dinghy. But when you factor in who's in this boat, there's Jesus and his 12 disciples, right? There's rowing utensils and sailing equipment. And don't forget, Jesus is having a nap. So he's like lying prostrate, taking up more space than he's allowed in the boat. So once you factor all that in, you've not got a lot of room to move and you're not actually in that big of a space when suddenly a great storm comes over. You realize these are fishermen? Like this isn't just like my toddler trying to learn how to swim. Like these guys know what's up on the Sea of Galilee. This is kind of their life. They know what it means to sail. And yet they look at this storm and they're just immediately freaking out. A furious storm is the description. They're not just like kind of going up and down with some big waves. It says here in verse 24 that the waves swept over the boat. They've got water dripping down their faces as it just slaps them left and right. They are aware that if something doesn't change, they will all drown and die. Jesus, why are you so afraid? What's going on, dudes? Are you really, are you really not getting... To me, I think this is a fair call, but it's only as you realize... The first bit of Jesus' words that it makes sense. When Jesus says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Jesus isn't silly. He knows that every earthly reason suggests you will die in this situation. But he doesn't live in a place where the natural matters because he is the one who created the tidal patterns and who controls every storm and knows where every single wind will blow. 
He's in complete power and authority. If you understood disciples who is lying in your boat sleeping right now, you would never fear. Because he's the one who, who made storms, who thought about them creatively and devised them as part of this world. You of little faith. I love that because he's not just saying you have no faith. He's not like you idiots. Come on. You know better than this. No, he's saying you do have faith. You do. It's, it's little, but you've got it. You, my last, the last section, Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead and come and follow me. Right? The call to follow Jesus is to leave everything behind. And these disciples, they're doing it. They've left everything behind to follow Jesus. They do have faith, but it's little faith because they don't realize who it is they're following. They, in their worldview, can only see what they have known and experienced and don't recognize that they have the Lord of heaven in their midst, the powerful one. Did you see the way he calms it? Verse 26, he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves. It's kind of like a parent scolding their kid for doing something silly. He's like, stop it. And immediately, everything goes calm. It's incredible. It's incredible. I'm not sure if this is true. Feel free to fact check me. But I hear that when a storm starts to subside, the wind will pass, the lightning will go, but the waves take a little while to catch up. And you have a look at what's happened here. Verse 26, and it was completely calm. The kind of storm that fishermen are like fearing is the worst storm of their entire lives with a word, completely calm. It's incredible. Yes, Jesus has authority over all things, but this is given to you and I to know that this is your Jesus, the Lord who loves you, who saved you, who died for you, who rose again, who gave you his Holy Spirit, the power that raised him from the dead to live within you. If you've got Jesus in your boat, you don't need to fear. When you live in a place of faith, there is no room for fear. Now, this isn't a promise that everything's going to go okay, that earthly security is guaranteed you if you have faith in Jesus. We kind of covered this last week. Jesus, when he brings healing to the world, isn't saying I'm going to miraculously heal every single person because he's interested in a deeper healing. What this does say is that when you do have Jesus, you trust that every little detail, every atom is at his control and goes in his direction, and you can trust him. He's just having a nap on the boat, but you don't need to fear because he holds the world together, and he's yours. And so I think that means that our discipleship in Jesus is as we encounter the natural world around us and the sin and the difficulties and the wrestles and the trials, we come with our baggage and our expectation just like everyone else, but we fight this battle of pushing fear aside and living in faith because we don't just follow the world like everyone else does. We have Jesus in our boat. It sounds a bit silly, but it's true. You're, you're sitting in this boat and whatever metaphor in this story appeals to you, the wind, the waves, the storm, whatever, anything that this world can throw at you, Jesus is with you. It's, there's lots of reasons to be afraid of stuff in life. I think this is a great reason to be afraid of these disciples. And yet, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? And he says the same to us. Perhaps we are like these disciples and we live with little faith sometimes. He's not denying that we're believers. He's not denying that we're Christians. You've been saved. You've been loved. You've been cherished. But it's time to step up and step forward with faith that Jesus is with you. So discipleship following Jesus is fighting for faith in the place of fear. Cool? That's the storm. Now we get to the juicy stuff, the demonic the spiritual powers. Look with me. It's, this, is, this is confronting for you and me. Verse 28. 
When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. This isn't just a one-off occurrence where there just happened to be a demon in this little obscure... They're just walking to the next destination and they encounter these, these men whose cognitive function and their will has been so suppressed by these demons that they live in a graveyard. That's the stuff of horror movies, right? And they're so violent that everyone like goes two kilometers out of their way so they don't see these guys because they've just been so overcome and possessed by these demons. Now, that's kind of scary when you think about it. If this is not just a nice moral story to learn something about Jesus having authority, but it's a picture into the real world that we live in, that there are real powers, demons, forces, spiritual realities that live in opposition to God and live in opposition to us. It can be a moment of fear. It can be. But this moment is not, this story is not given to us to instill fear, but to bring us to faith. It's not to instill fear, it's to bring us to faith. The disciples don't have questions about whether demons are real. It's a part of their everyday experience. That's a part of their worldview. And so they're coming not surprised that there's some demon-possessed man, but surprised that they fear Jesus. They're surprised that with a word, they go out of these men and go into the pigs. They're surprised because they see that this spiritual stuff that they've wrestled with their whole life suddenly has no power because they have Jesus with them. It's not meant to give us fear. It only feels fearful because if you're like me, you've been in year nine and you've hung out with your buds, sleeping in your bed, watching a horror movie, and there's like demons speaking Latin and someone spinning on the ceiling and then there's blood everywhere and everyone dies you want a good horror movie recommendation, I have plenty. It was a weird phase of my life. I know it's weird, but but that's what comes to my mind, right? But it only comes to my mind because we are just so removed from the spiritual. Are you seeing what I'm trying to say here? Our worldview is so much more 21st century than it is biblical. This is the world as it is. This is not a one-off occurrence. This is the reality. And I want to just make it clearer. There are demon-possessed people and demon-oppressed people in Neutral Bay, in Kirribilli, in Mossman, in Cremorne. Insert your suburb here. This is a feature of the world. You might be asking, well, why don't I see it? Well, come with me to the, the boardroom that Satan and his, his lieutenants are devising a strategy. They're sitting down, they're having a look at, you know, the enlightened Western world who loves their science and being right in everything. And they go, how could we convince more and more people to disappear from faith? How could we just lead people further and further away from Jesus? I know, what if we just disappear? What if we stop doing the weird Latin and the, you know, spinning on the ceiling and the blood everywhere instead? What if we just, like, kind of move to the margins we just like just start directing people to fixate on themselves and fixate on forging wealth and money and, and their pleasure. Let's, let's make hedonism a great God. Let's get them serving mammon. Let's get all of these, let's direct all of our spiritual power to not being seen and scaring, but instead to try and derail and outfox them, right? If you and I were every day confronted with someone with a demon, you're going to be going, maybe my Western naturalism doesn't make sense of the world. And what do you do? You then go for answers and you find Jesus and you get saved. It doesn't work for Satan. Instead, he moves out of the way. Baudelaire famously said that Satan's greatest trick was convincing the world that he doesn't exist, and it's true. 
Satan and demon powers have their hooks in Sydney. I've been talking to a bunch of brothers and sisters lately who have a better sense of discernment than I, and there really truly is a spiritual darkness that sits over the North Shore. It's not just a basic idolatry as we often talk about in church, people who have chosen to elevate money over God. There are actual spiritual powers that are directing people and darkening hearts and even possessing people. It's just not out in the open because it's advantageous to not be out in the open. Bron shared beautifully about the, the Masango family. I, I've read some stuff that Tawanda sent through to our team that talks about his experience in Zimbabwe. It is an everyday reality in Africa that your life is governed by the spirits. It's not a question. There is, and it's not just like us standing here with our, you know, our you know, Western hats on being like, look at those idiots. They don't have science, so they use spirits to define things. No, they see like demonic, miraculous, powerful stuff Their wrestle is not to go, is there really a spiritual realm? They're very aware of it. Their wrestle is, how do we stand firm in Jesus with faith and take hold of the power of God and combat the spiritual realm? That's where they're sitting. But for us, we need to actually wake up from our spiritual slumber and realize that perhaps our longing to see friends, family, strangers encounter Jesus and be saved is not just simply a better evangelistic strategy, but it's a movement of prayer and revival because there are powers at work here. And we come again back to Ephesians 6. I don't like giving homework, but here's your homework. Go read Ephesians 6. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of this world. It's not just a, a nice little Bible verse on the side. It's the foundation of our faith in the New Testament. We cannot despiritualize Christianity. The ouch moment for me in this passage is when you look at the demons. They come and see Jesus in verse 29. What do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? The reason it's an ouch moment is because I often find myself like the disciples in the boat with little faith, not really believing the power of Jesus. But these demons have incredible faith. They've got great theology. They're like, look, this is the guy that was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 700 years ago. He's the son of God, the Messiah, the suffering servant. He's the one that's been awaited. And you know what? He's going to come and throw us all into the lake of fire at some point. So is that what you're coming to do right now, Jesus? Like they get it. I don't get it sometimes. I think I'm just like living my life and staying in my lane. These demons who, who want nothing to do with God have a greater faith in theology than we do sometimes. And that's an ouch for me. But the beautiful thing is, again, to come back to what is absolutely essential, is this is not for us to be fearful, but faithful. Because we just see they're afraid of Jesus. They're desperately afraid that Jesus is going to come and torture them or completely destroy them as is going to happen at some point. We need to reclaim a spiritual, biblical worldview. That's not giving up your brain and leaving it at the door. You can engage in science, in, in any sorts of real thoughtful, rational thinking, while allowing this clear reality of the spiritual. Because if we don't, our Our discipleship is hampered. Now, I don't have time to answer all the questions of like, how does demon possession work? And what about oppression? And can Christians be possessed by demons? And X, Y, Z. Look, we'd be here for hours, and I've got some questions too that I need answering. This is the beginning of a conversation. We've got a few passages coming up in this series before the end of the year where we're going to encounter this stuff again. I think it'll hopefully scratch some of that itch. But I, I do think this is something that God is calling us to as a church, and I mean like the Western church, 
to wake up and recognize that we are waging spiritual warfare and to work out what does that look like. So if you're at all stirred by that or interested, I would love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. I don't want to launch a ministry, a new program. I want to, um, I want to press deeper into the power of the Holy Spirit and live in the spiritual reality of this world. And if you want to join me in that journey, think through some hard questions and wrestle, I'd love to have you along for the journey. But let's do that together. So let me leave you clearly with that sense of faith, not fear. Press into the spiritual reality, not because you're afraid of it, but because it's already there and Jesus is already powerful with you. And finally, and quickly, to tie it together with my last couple minutes, just nice and tidy. Chapter 9, we come to the paralyzed man. And again, Jesus just disrupts our expectations of what matters in life and brings us back to the spiritual. Jesus stepped into a boat, verse 1, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. I, just, I love this. These men, it's, the, it's his friends who have the faith. These, these friends have heard there's Jesus. He's casting out demons and healing the sick and, and giving sight to the blind and, and, and movement to the lame. If we can just get him before Jesus, he will be healed. There's concrete, unwavering faith. It's incredible. But you can just imagine just how deflated you feel when you finally get him in front. You've pushed through all the crowds. The other stories talk about like cutting a hole in the roof and lowering him down. You finally get there and Jesus says, oh man, your sins are forgiven. Like, but I would really like to walk. No, no, no. Your sins are forgiven. It kind of feels like a little bit, a little bit condescending, a little bit thoughtless. But the, the teachers of the law, they kind of get what's going on here. Verse three, they say, this fellow is blaspheming. They recognize that this is a claim to divinity, that this is something that only the eternal God could possibly promise or actually accomplish. And so Jesus gives them the clear question of like, is it easier for me to save your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And if he's fake, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can fact check you, right? No one can call up God and be like, hey, is he actually forgiven? Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. You know, you actually, you just get away with it. You just get to say it and keep on moving. But there's this beautiful moment where Jesus goes, you know what? I'll give you both. Just so you know that your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. And he walks away healed in his body, but more importantly, healed deep in his soul. Hear this. We talked about this last week. God does still bring miraculous healing because the kingdom has come and it still has its echoes through today. We should expect and pray for it. But doesn't always happen because the kingdom is still to come. What we know to be certain is Jesus is more interested in bringing deeper wholeness to your soul for eternity. For an uplifting sermon for your Sunday, you're all going to die. It's going to happen. I'm sorry to tell you that one day, I hope you have many wonderful years ahead of you, but every single one of us will breathe our last breath and we will die. And if God was kind to heal your body, that body will still die. I think of Lazarus, who, who was raised from the dead, like the most incredible miracle ever, and then a few years later, he just died again. You don't, you don't need physical healing as much as you need your entire eternal soul to be made whole and reconciled to God. If you're sitting here and you have yet to do business with God, you need to be forgiven. You need Jesus not to heal your body, but to heal your broken soul. The beautiful truth is you come to him with faith and nothing else, and he will make you whole. Do not leave this building without doing that business with God. There is no greater thing you could do with your life. 
but see the beautiful tenderness of God. He doesn't just want to do, deal with the natural and the physical. The spiritual reality in some ways is so much more important than we allow it to be because your soul matters more than your body because God will restore your body, but you need to be forgiven by him. So to really just capture it together, we need to wake up. We need to look at the world as the Bible leads us to look at the world, not as the world wants us to look. We need to step forward into that place, not with fear, but with faith. Because God is bigger, stronger, and more capable and present with us than we could ever imagine. And I believe, I really do believe this, that as we step into this place of faith with our eyes wide open, we can be expectant that God will move in power. Let me pray. Father Almighty, You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You are there creating all things with a word. And at the end of all creation, we will stand and behold you and worship you because of all that you've done. And right now in this little interlude that we find ourselves in, would you please, God, help us to wake up, open our eyes and to live with clarity that there is a reality of the world, the flesh and the devil We do need to battle a spiritual battle, but that you are with us, that your power is stronger, that you have already declared victory over sin and Satan and death, and we're just waiting for the final pen stroke to to mark it as true. Lord, please help us to live with that confidence and, yes, faith, that even when the waves and the storms around us are incredibly terrifying, you are there with us and we trust you. Lord, please help us to have faith. Help us in our unbelief. We ask all this that you might gain glory. Amen.